And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hey friends, Jane here. We have got a great episode for you today. Kathy and I had the chance to sit down with Harold Spooner to talk about our long history serving marginalized people, beginning with our early children's home and hospital, and continuing our mission to love mercy and do justice. But first, we interviewed Todd Slecka, who shares with us why he loves the Cove. So, Todd, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us uh, who you are, what you do, and then we want to hear about your journey into the covenant. Sure, sure. Well, my name is Todd Selecta, and I am currently the Executive Vice President of Covenant Ministries of Benevolence. And um, I also have a dual role as President of Covenant Initiatives for Care, which is an affiliate of uh, CMB. So uh, that's what my current role is. And uh, again, I don't know if if, they, if people are listening know what Covenant Ministry of Benevolence is, but it, it's an arm of the denomination that works um, in retirement communities. It formerly had hospitals out in, in California. And then, uh, as people know, we recently uh, sold Swedish Covenant Hospital to North Shore. Um, Covenant Issues for Care, which is adults' um, homes and residences for adults with special needs. And, uh, and then we have uh, uh, the Legacy Foundation of EMC Health, which is the Emanuel Medical Center out in California that does a lot of medical um, for lower socioeconomic and, uh, efforts in, in uh, California. So those are the things that um, CMB oversees. I became a Christian uh, in, in college, but what I like to tell people is I, I, I came into the covenant because I turned left for a cheeseburger. That's how I got into the covenant. Um, so uh, as I was growing up in Berwyn, in the Chicago area, Southwest suburbs, I knew that I was going to college because my parents said I had to. Um, and that, so that was a done deal. And I knew I wanted to play soccer. And I knew that I was in a garage band that was going to make it big along with all the other millions of bands in the 80s. So I needed to be, uh, I needed to find a place that I, I could play soccer, pretend I was going to school and still get back to practice with my band. So um, I, I went out and I interviewed um, at, and, and did a site visit at Wheaton College. Um, but the interesting thing there, they wanted me to sign a lifestyle statement. And I remember reading the lifestyle statement. And then my dad looking over my shoulder and he's reading the lifestyle statement. And my dad goes, oh, hell no, he won't do any of that. You know what I mean? Um, and so, but their response was, well, just sign it. And, and I thought, that just doesn't feel right to me to sign something that literally I know I'm not going to do. And my father's going, oh, he won't do. So we left Wheaton and we had a, an interview, uh, a site visit up at Lake Forest College on the northern part of Chicago. Now I'm a Southwest blue collars boy, you know what I mean? So we go up to Lake Forest and I tell you in the first 20 minutes, I knew like, this is not going to work. Um, and, and you guys can all read into that however you wish. So we were driving back home and we decided not to take the expressways because my dad, he, he's a different person when he's done it. So we're taking all the side roads and um, we get to um, a Kimball and Foster and we're hungry and we look and there's a McDonald's. So we turned left, and as we're driving, my dad goes, well, here's the college. You want to pull in here and get an application? And so we, we pulled into the college. We walked into Old Main, and the coach of the soccer team happened to be in the lobby. And so he and I started talking, and as he was talking, the two captains from the team came in. He introduced me to them and that said, you want to go on a tour? So I went on a tour with these two guys was so impressed with them, was so impressed with the coach. Um, and I said, do I have to sign a lifestyle statement? And they said, no, uh, but you will have to take a Bible class. And um, I said, I can handle that. And so um, I ended up at North Park because I turned left for a cheeseburger. That's how it was. Sophomore year, um, through uh, what I would say is the quiet witness people, um, there was no there was no attempt to um, Force feed me, to, force feed me the four spiritual laws. There was no attempt to c compel me to go to chapel. There was, it was just 
surrounded by a number of believers who just quietly lived out their life. And their witness was the way they um, accepted, cared for, didn't judge, um, stayed integrated into my life, uh, celebrated victories with me, was there when I was mourning. Um, and there was sort of this, I call it now, and it's in CIC's culture statements, I call it outreach without expectation and service as the best expression of our faith. To me, that was evangelism at its best. Um, and so at some point, um, I remember thinking, what makes these people tick? Like who in the world will, will um, serve people that they don't know doing things that I'm sure they don't think are all that great, but still letting me maintain my dignity and still extending me that dignity. And so I started inquiring about this Jesus that people knew. And then from there, they willingly shared a little bit about who Christ was in their life, introduced me to what it meant to be a, a disciple, introduced me to the story of Jesus. And then on Easter Sunday, my sophomore year, so 1983, um, on Easter Sunday, I remember kneeling and accepting Christ as my personal Savior for the first time, and that has been my 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 journey of faith ever since. Um, and so, that's how I, I came into the covenant. Um, that's and I didn't. I, and by the way, once I became a Christian, I didn't. I didn't um, just go. Oh, I became a Christian at North Park. Therefore, covenant wins. I must be a covenanter. Um, I actually started going out and looking at all kinds of other expressions of faith. I actually thought I was going to be an Episcopalian for the longest time. But um but but there was but what drew me back to the covenant over and over and over was uh our commitment to the affirmations, our our affirmations, the centrality of scripture, the present day work of the Holy Spirit, the reality of Jesus Christ, like uh, our five affirmations, we said these things, um, these elements are 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 um are the ones we will not compromise on. Everything else we will hold together, we will struggle together, but we will not dismiss one another, degrade one another, ostracize one another, we will hold together. And what I came to realize was that's how you grow as a disciple. That's how you grow when you live in this dissonance, when you live in this um, place where you where all, you can't get all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. That, that, that's not how humans are wired. We're paradoxically a mess. That's beautiful. And so for me, the minute we start going, hey, this is what we believe, and you have to tick off these boxes, is the minute our faith starts to die. But the covenant, if we say our affirmations we hold to and everything else, we cling to one another in unity and we will slug it out because it's better together and we'll grow and we'll extend one another dignity, that's the covenant at its best. That's the covenant at its best. And, and that's why I chose it. Um, and that's why I'm still here. And it's also why even when it's not on its best days, I'm still committed to it. So you said that it was the affirmations yeah. that really did it for you. Like, what did that journey look like, though? Like, how did you I mean, like, oh. right? because I'm guessing there was just like, here is the covenant orientation class. And but like, what did that <laughs> journey look like of like, this is legit? Like, yeah. What did that look like? Um, I, you know, like I said, when um I became a person of faith. I, I started actually visiting other denominations, but part of it was, it wasn't, here's the funny thing. There was a certain innocence to it, you know, Jane, because it was like, wow, there's all kinds of other believers out there and they all got like some really interesting ideas. You know what I mean? And, and I found that to be very invigorating because there was, there wasn't, um, there wasn't a sense of like, it's our way and everybody else is wrong. There was sort of like, like the, those, those people that were probably living out their affirmations, even though they didn't know it at the time, were encouraging me saying, hey, do look, do go ask, do question. Because there was this belief that, that um, questioning was good. Questioning was what humans do. Questioning is what draws us to, to greater depths of, of devotion and, and intellect. And, there, and we weren't afraid of it at that time. And so um, for me, it was fits and starts. Like I said, on any given moment from my sophomore year to probably my almost halfway through my senior year, when I finally declared I am a covenanter and I got the card and, and learned the handshake. I think of, for me, it was one of those things where um, I, I would tell my parents, um, hey, I think I'm going to be an Episcopalian. They're like, what's that? Because don't forget, my family weren't believers. And I, then like two weeks later, I was like, 
actually, you know, I heard the Pope speak. I think I'm Catholic. And then, then it was like, you know, three weeks later, it was like, I smelled incense at an Eastern Orthodox. You know what? I'm in. And, and so there was this whole, this whole kind of journey of, but then I started realizing that when I met mature people in each one of those expressions of Christianity, all of them had some similar themes. Um, and it was, um, hey, do, do you know Jesus? Yes, even my Catholic friends, you know, the, the, do you know, um, do you know that the, the broader witness of the church, Eastern Orthodoxy has something to say about what the full collective witness of the church is. Um, suddenly I started going, you know what, you know, I, I'll probably find a church that I don't like its worship, but I like that it's covenant and its affirmations are being held up in the right way and, and it, with the same fervor and the same commitment to. So it was fits and starts. And it took me a while to make peace with the fact that, you know what? A good covenanter um, is, is comfortable with a lot of messy humans, a lot of fits and start faith. But, but when the smoke clears, it's the centrality of scripture, it's Jesus, it's the present day work of the spirit and everything else is nonsense. It's just nonsense that divides us up over nonsense. Um, so it, it wasn't a clean line for me. Now, I've been influenced along the way, too. Um, you could imagine my surprise when, um, because I turned left for a cheeseburger, four years later, I have friends going, have you ever felt a call to ministry? And I'm like, okay, that's a new one. Um, I've gotten calls before, um, but they were landline and analog. And, um, and so I don't know what that means. And so having them help me understand what this was to be um, called by God. And that's when I started learning about the collective witness. Like you can have an internal call, but then the collective witness affirms that. And there's this dialogue between, you know, uh, yeah, my call is affirmed by the broader body. Um, I don't think covenant just realize how important that is. That keeps us from false prophets and charlatans and manipulators. When, when someone says I'm called, and then we submit to the broader affirmation of that. that there's a beauty to that theology. Um, because I love doing this when someone says, you know, God told me X, Y, Z. And I said, funny, he told me ABC. Now what are we going to do? Because um, again, it, it, to me, there's a humility to God, I feel this, but let the broader witness affirm that. There's, that, that demands humility. And, uh, and I think that's a good thing. So, it, it, uh, but in my call, it was really the collective witness that confirmed it for me and my insecurity of, and even sometimes resistance of that call that actually, here's a strange thing that, that, that pull and tension and back and forth made the call more certain for me. And that, that there was maturation in the call because of that tension and dialogue and question. That's, that's a microcosm. What this, this walk of discipleship should be like. Um, and then for me, when I got to seminary, that was the first time I started pulling straight A's in my whole life. I, uh, um, and so um, I found a place, an affirmation. And then throughout my journey, I've had mentors that are Talmud teachers, rabbis, Eastern Orthodox bishops, Roman Catholic priests, Roman Catholic nuns, the breath of, and they've all spoken with great wisdom into my faith. But the only place that can hold them all together in a decent way is the covenant. And at its best, it doesn't, it was never, it, it didn't look clean. My journey of faith, it was, it was a mess and still is to a, to a big degree. Um, but I would say the difference is I've grown comfortable with the messiness of it and understand the, the, the benefit and the, and the, 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 the depth of discipleship that comes from that messiness and the comfort with it. How'd you end up at CMB? <laughs> oh man, get yourself a drink, sister. Let's talk. Uh, it was a it, so it was a deal where um, uh, I I what after because yeah, let me back this all up. So I became a pastor, and I was a pastor for seven years in Colorado Springs um, at Faith Covenant Church down there, and then I ran into some folks um, that we're running a Bible college up in Canada called Covenant Bible College. And so through a, 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 a discernment process, I ended up teaching at Covenant Bible College for 10 years, um, mostly leaning into Old Testament and bringing sort of thought to Old Testament classes. 
But then I, I discovered a Gifford administration. And so uh, I actually went and started the CBC campus in Ecuador um, and the offshore one. So I, I started that. But then, as you know, um, in about 08, with the economic downturn and a number of things, CBC closed. And that was a painful, you know, to be really honest, it was a painful closure. Um, not for, just for a lot of reasons, but it was just probably one of the biggest feelings of loss I have felt in, in my life. And, and I really felt at that time I, I was done with ministry, you know, that I had um, sort of had the best job of my life and the best call of my life. So really can only get worse from here. So I attempted. And so um, I, I got, I started doing consulting work and uh, was asked to do a, a consultation on a, a school in Denver that was working with, um, uh, it was in their second year of existence and working with children in the lower socioeconomic uh, uh, strata, about 67% were first-generation immigrants. There were 32 languages spoken in the school, that kind of thing. And they had a rough first year. So I got hired as a consultant to work with their teachers and, and leadership to develop a turnaround plan for them. So I helped develop that turnaround plan. And then as I was ending the contract, they turned around and said, how about if you be the principal and just implement it? So I became the principal of a K-8 elementary school in Denver for four years um, and implemented the turnaround plan and then was approached by a couple colleagues who said, hey, there's this thing coming down the pike called the Affordable Care Act. We don't know what this means, but we know that the lowest cost point for care and health care is in home care. So how about if we all pool and start an in-home health care company or go buy one? So in 08, we or was it 08? We bought um, a small um, in-home healthcare company in Denver, and then the Affordable Care Act passed, and sure enough, and so we started acquiring a bunch of small in-home healthcare companies. And and my my bent was um, at the school that I worked with. Uh, we had about 20% of our kids were on IEPs and special needs, so we developed a niche where we worked with children and adults in rural and remote rural areas that primarily had children or adults with special needs. That was the niche that our healthcare company um, found. So I did that for about seven years. And then um, in case you're kind of picking up, I kind of have this entrepreneurial side, I kind of get bored. So then um, I crossed paths with uh, Roger Oxendale, who was the president of CMB at the time. And we went out for coffee in Denver. And I told him what I was doing. And he looked at me, uh, brother in Christ, and just said, why are you wasting your life? And I went, I thought I did pretty good. Like, uh, and he goes, like, I think uh, I might have something for you in the denomination. And I said, uh, okay. Uh, one thing led to another, and I accepted a call to be the president of CIC um, three years ago in August of 19. And my wife and I looked at it as this is a way I can give back to the denomination that I love. Um, that I'm committed to in a way that fits my giftedness and talents. And so that's how I ended up at CIC. Roger said, come and work with me. Um, I'll be there about three more years and we can work together. He retired in six months after I came on board. And uh, I, I haven't forgiven him for that yet. And then um, and uh, over time, uh, through a collective discernment with the CMB board, they asked me if I would be let my name stand to be the president of CMB, which should come to the annual meeting for uh, this summer. So we see this as our, um, I see this and my wife sees this as a, a way to give back to a denomination that birthed me in many ways. Um, CMB and CIC are involved in things that honestly are, are the covenant at its best. Um, uh, CMB was, was the result of the home of mercy where a bunch of Swedish immigrants looked around and said, there's need, there's orphans and there's old people and there's sick people. What do we do? So they, they bought a three floor house and they stuck the sick on one level. They stick the kids on the next level and the older people in the, which I don't understand on the third floor. And, um, and then that just became this thing where um, without outreach, without expectation service is the best expression of faith. There was need and we moved to meet it in the way we felt we could at the time. It became covenant living retirement communities. It became hospitals and it became covenant initiatives for care that works with adults with special needs. That's what happens when you live into your affirmations and you believe that 
service is the best expression and outreach without expectation is the strongest form of evangelism. That's what happens. Mice begin to roar when that happens. So yeah, that that's how I ended up here. And I intend to stay here until I either retire or they kick me out, one of the two. So it's, yeah, I think you're picking up. I have a pretty bizarre kind of take on life. Um, uh, I actually finished writing a book and I went back and forth with, with the publisher about the title. They wanted me to do a much tamer title. Uh, but, but the title is um, A Flying Gerbil in the Drunk Man's Club. That's the title that won finally. And uh, they, they, they claim that it's going to not um, sell because of the title. And I'm going, <laughs> yeah, but it, it fits sort of what I think the book is. So, yeah. Can you give the title again? It's... Uh, a, a Flying Gerbil in the Drunk Guy's Club. <laughs> what is your book about? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you Yeah, I had the drunk guy to have the flying gerbil. Come on, they go hand in hand. Um, but, uh, but no, it's a thing where um, the subtitle is CPR for the Living Word of God, and um, and what it is is uh, uh, because I I was steeped with some wonderful mentors in my life that had a rabbinical background. Um, one of the things I like doing is looking at certain passages of scripture, but then when we do a deep dive on sort of the first century rabbinical context. And you start to look at some of these passages, it actually changes the meaning, and we've had the meaning wrong. Um, and so there's 12 different chapters where it was here's a familiar passage. Here's here's what first century Judaism was going with the symbolism, the theology, and things that was going on at the time. And here's how we translate it, but here's how it should be translated. Um, and so it's meant to um appease what I, I, I would call my um, disillusioned evangelical side, um, that sometimes we pick a passage and we, uh, we oversimplify the theology to it, and then it leads us to places where it's anything but Christ-like or biblical. Um, uh, it's, it's a call back to uh, stop being lazy and let's do some work, and, and then the scriptures will actually take us into places that are more reflective of the heart of Christ and more reflective of the collective biblical witness. Knowing the covenant at its best, what do you sense God's invitation is for us today? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the, the oversimplification is let's live into our best again. Um, like uh, I, I, I do have a fear of, of for our denomination. Um, well, actually, let me rephrase that. Not just our denomination. I have a fear for Protestantism and evangelicalism in particular. That um, somewhere along the way, we have um, forgotten uh, uh, that uh, that faith isn't about a checkbox of certain beliefs um, and 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 positions on certain things of theology, but that it really is. A, a dynamic, paradoxical, painfully wonderful relationship that we stay committed to um, as long as those affirmations are intact, which says to me then, pick your issue, and I'm not going to explode any on the podcast here, but but pick an issue in, in that, um, you know, so, so Jane, you're on one side of this issue, I'm on the other side of the issue, but I do not doubt your love for Christ. I do not doubt your commitment to scripture. I do not doubt your, your, your relationship with Jesus. I do not doubt that you're committed to the church, but you really frustrate me. Just like any family member, any family member that matters to me, I love them to death and I can't stand them, but I'll never go anywhere. Um, and, and, and I'm a little nervous for us because if we can lean into our affirmations again, and say that is what matters, we actually have something very real to say to the culture today, something unique, different, and very Christ-like. If we fall into the category of our faith means you believe this, 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 this on these issues, well, I'll tell you where that leads us. That leads to spiritual immaturity. And that means that spiritual immaturity means I have a faith that I can draw a line from my love of Christ to burning down a building in the midst of a peaceful protest or, or my love for Christ and storming the Capitol. And both of those say we failed as disciples. Um, and so to me, the covenant has something to offer, a discipleship of richness, of maturation, of, 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 of a long trek towards, towards um, growth and maturity that is the faith in Jesus. 
And it's rooted around those affirmations and not around our positions on any given issue at any time. Because if you look at our history, we've been wrong on issues. We've had issues where we took one stance and I'm sorry, you're both women. There was a time when we actually said it was an abomination for women to be in the pulpit. We actually said that at one point. We were wrong. All right. We were wrong. So for us to pick an issue and say, it is this way now and forever, to me is the covenant saying, yeah, we're okay with um, declining. We're, we're okay with declining maturity and we're okay with watered down discipleship. And that's what I have a, a fear for the covenant. But boy, if we lean into the covenant at its best, those affirmations first, and the issues we'll keep revisiting over and over and wrestle together because of our love for one another and our commitment to Christ, what would that say to a culture that is saying you must put people in different categories and then ignore them, degrade them, demean them, ostracize them? We would be the counter voice. And to me, I still hope for that. I just still hope for that for the covenant. Carol, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. We are here with Harold Spooner, longtime covenant leader. And Harold, could we just begin by hearing a little bit of your own journey? How did you find your way into the covenant? Sure. Well, I grew up in New York City and uh, in the Reformed Church in America. So I often joke that now that I'm with the Dutch, with the Swedes, I had to kind of give up my Dutch heritage, right? (laughs) (laughs) Join the Swedes. But um, yeah, so I grew up in the Reformed Church in New York City. Um, Went to the Stony Brook School on Long Island. Went to Houghton College. uh, Joined Young Life staff. Well, actually, I worked for the Reformed Church for a few years uh, in the Robert Taylor Homes in Chicago. And then um, joined Young Life staff. Worked in the Cabrini Green Homes in Chicago, was a regional director in Young Life, uh, left there, taught at the Stony Brook School and found my way to the covenant at the end of all of that. While I was teaching at the Stony Brook School, uh, I got a call from one of my former Young Life colleagues who mentioned to me that Jim Lundeen, who was working with the Covenant at the time, was looking for someone to join him, and particularly a person of color to join him in this new department that the Covenant had formed called Compassion, Mercy, and Justice. That intrigued me um, primarily because I hadn't heard of a evangelical denomination that would even think about doing something called compassion, mercy, and justice. And yet the covenant was. And so he, uh, so I called Jim and make long story short, he and I connected as I was exploring the covenant, he asked me to call a number of African-American pastors uh, within the covenant to, to check it out. And uh, as it turned out, the pastors that he had me call were people that I had known from young life, my young life days, people like Don Davenport and Henry Greenwich, uh, Harvey Drake, uh, folks like that. So I was like, oh, really? I knew they, they were pastoring churches after they left young life, but I didn't know that they were in the covenant. And so um, as I talked to each one of them, they uh, highly encouraged me to take on this endeavor. Paul Peterson, he was the president of CMB the, the, the time he he actually pushed me i mean I, I had an ordination already but he pushed me to get ordained in the covenant um because it was you know his thought that you know um if i'm gonna be dealing with covenant pastors it's good to be part of the club right <laughs> so it's like because my job didn't require me to do that you know uh, uh, working with CMB, but the connection between the church and CMB had to be um, more solidified. And my being an ordained covenant pastor helped to pull those pieces together, I think, a little bit better. So, so that's kind of how I found my way to the covenant. 
Harold, when was that? When, like, when was that department started? The department was started in 1996, and uh, and Jim was its first director, and I came in in 97, in August of 97, to be exact. Can we go back a little bit to the origins of, like, mm-hmm. the children's home, the hospital? Sure. Like, for listeners that don't know those stories, can you help us kind of unpack that? Sure. So the home of mercy that was in Chicago uh, was opened in 1821 um, at the behest of, uh, in the midst of um, plague and, you know, you had all the Swedish immigrants that were in that part of Chicago and, you know, uh, living conditions weren't great and, you know, but at the Home of Mercy, um, the, the, the denomination at the time, which was very small and was all Swedes, so we, again, our history of needing to care for the, for the disenfranchised, uh, they put this Home of Mercy together where on one floor there was an orphanage, on another floor there was seniors were cared for, and on another floor they had a little kind of hospital kind of thing. So you have that home of mercy that ended up spawning the children's homes, uh, the hospitals, Swedish Covenant and Emanuel Medical Center out in Turlock, California, and then the children's homes, you know, the one in Princeton and the one out in um, uh, Connecticut. Uh, So it was all out of this idea that as covenanters, um, you know, God's glory, people's good, right? Um, That we cared for one another beyond just proclaiming the word, but living it out and caring for the disenfranchised. So... um, yeah, so Swedish Covenant and Covenant Living and the children's homes all grew out of that home of mercy that was started in Chicago in around, around 1821. Um, and since then, uh, we, we now have, well, the hospitals, the hospital industry has changed, you know, healthcare and that whole industry is so different now. Um, and even um, the child welfare system is very different now than it was when we started, you know, back in 1821, obviously. So those ministries are still alive and vital today. They have different names and they look a little bit different. Um, Adelbrook, which is what, which was our children's home in, um, Connecticut. They came under the umbrella of CMB, uh, back in 2000. Um, Covenant Children's Home and Family Services in Princeton, Illinois came under the umbrella of CMB uh, again in around around the same time around the 2000s because they had previously been conference ministries, but as the industries changed, healthcare, child welfare, the the regulatory practices that were involved and engaged with those CMB. Could I mean we we had the experience to deal with all of that, a conference superintendent having to oversee um, <laughs> a highly regulated regulated industry like child welfare or even hospitals. I mean it, it just it could be overwhelming. So again, the need for a CMB um, uh, is just critical, and certainly as we look at covenant living now. Um, you know, you're talking about, I don't know how many 
hundreds of millions of dollars uh, we have in assets. And uh, again, the regulatory reality of that, senior care and all of those things. I mean, those worlds are very complicated. And so you need people who know what they're doing to be able to do that. So hence, as CMB is an extension of the ministry of of the denomination, we are in partnership with the denomination in terms of, again, caring for the disenfranchised. But can you tell us more about the overall work of our ministries of benevolence and the roles within the scope of covenant history and ministry? Um, so when we think about the covenant ministries of benevolence and its contribution to the mission, the greater overall mission of the church, um, what is now Love, Mercy, Do Justice started in the uh, Covenant Ministries of Benevolence Department. And I think one of the reasons it was able to start there was that Covenant Ministries of Benevolence, you know, our healthcare and being a small healthcare organization, we were in a highly regulatory industry. Uh, and being in that highly regulatory industry, it was also a, a, a profitable business at one time, if you can believe that. Healthcare was actually profitable. I'm sure the big organizations are saying that now, but um, we, it was a profitable organization, but they wanted to, as a not-for-profit, were looking for ways by which to reinvest into the church and how to reinvest into the church around issues where people were cared for. As we talk about the ministry of the covenant, you know, we talk about preaching the gospel and acting the gospel and being um, the hands and feet of Jesus, doing both. You know, it's not a either or proposition, it's a both and. So Covenant Ministries of Benevolence had the um, resources to be able to say, okay, we can do this Department of Compassion, Mercy and Justice, not knowing fully what it was going to look like and what directions it was going to take, but it had the resources available to begin to move in that direction to say, how do we as a church continue? And, you know, I don't want to say the covenant had it. The covenant has a long history of uh, uh, doing, being hands and feet of Jesus in various capacities. But to start moving around specific issues of race and class, um, again, for an evangelical denomination to move in that direction um, was quite unique. It still is, to be quite frank. Um, So, yeah, so I think that as we think of it that way, uh, we started there. And then uh, also, through Compassion, Mercy, and Justice, we were able to do a ministry called Churches Planting Ministries. Um, and that was a direct outgrowth of the church growth movement where churches planting churches was the thing that was happening. This is again in the late 90s, early 2000s, as we were growing as a denomination. And uh, out of compassion, mercy, and justice, as we were looking to deal with issues of race and class, we were saying, look, how do we make a difference uh, in communities? And so we were able to um, do some granting to churches that were doing community development type projects. And we were were able to engage in those things. Around the issues of race, um, it was out of that department that we began the Sankofa journeys. And we also um, began to develop uh, the invitation to racial righteousness. So as we are looking at some of the things that uh, Love, Mercy, Do Justice is doing now, all those had their roots in compassion, mercy, and justice under the Department of Covenant Ministries of Benevolence. Could you tell us about your role in those early days of Sankofa? The same year I came on staff, actually the very summer, I came on in August of 1997. That same month, I got called into a meeting, uh, Jim Lundin and I, with uh, Russ Knight, Peter Showboom, then President uh, then President Larson, uh, Evelyn Johnson, 
And President Larson wanted to uh, do the next midwinter with the theme of celebrating ethnic diversity. There are also members of the Ethnic Commission at that meeting, uh, Don Davenport and a couple of others uh, who are all part of that. At that time, and we're talking 97, the percentage of churches of color uh, uh, was pretty low. <laughs> you know, if, if, if we were uh, 10%, it would be very generous, <laughs> you know, because uh, you're talking Latino, um, uh, Asian churches. And at that time, our Asian population was the Korean church. It was it, it wasn't. Pan-Asian yet. It was primarily uh, the Korean uh, Korean church and um, uh, the Alaska church. So native Alaska. And uh, there were a number of Latino churches at the time. Um, but that that was the ethnic commission. And Paul wanted to do a midwinter in 98 of celebrating ethnic diversity. Um, it was one of those incidences where we all just kind of looked at each other um, and were perplexed, um, you know, given the fact that there wasn't, what are we celebrating here? You know, there's nothing here really. But um, to Paul's credit, uh, he had a vision of what could be. And uh, they had done the consultation to the cities uh, after the Rodney King incident uh, a few years, a couple of years earlier. And again, Paul asked the question, where's the church in the midst of the, the rioting and whatnot that was going on in LA around the issues of race? So to his credit, he said, you know, hey, as a covenant denomination, we need to be, uh, we need to figure out what that's about and how can we be uh, part of a solution as opposed to continuing to contribute to the problem. Um, so we planned the midwinter for 1998. Um, I looking for, again, I was brand new. I had never been to a midwinter before. It was, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of going midwinter theme. Okay, great. What are we doing? But we ended up, uh, Compassion, Mercy, and Justice taking the lead on it. And, uh, you know, we developed the whole curriculum around it. What was unique about it was that uh, all the workshops that were designed were going to be um, there, there. There weren't a bunch of, you know, workshops. There were a bunch of workshops, but they had one theme and they had one curriculum, which was very different. And we helped to put that cur curriculum together. Myself, Brenda Salter McNeil, Rube Sims, uh, who was teaching at the university at the time. Uh, we put the curriculum together and, and that was the theme for that midwinter. Um, Don pushed the idea that this also had never been done before, that the theme needed to be a two year theme, not just a one year theme, uh, because, you know, you're we just scratching the surface. And uh, so, again, uh, with the Ethnic Commission and uh, with others, uh, President Larson agreed, thought it was a good idea. So the next year, uh, we had the theme again. And uh, this time we didn't do the entire curriculum at the midwinter around that, but we uh, but we did some some other things. And post that midwinter, uh, a few days after, we had planned the very first Sankofa. And we got the idea of Sankofa from uh, Christian Community Development Association. Earlier that year, they did a, uh, their conference was in Birmingham and their theme was Sankofa. And uh, being in Birmingham, we were able to um, visit the uh, Civil Rights Institute, uh, and uh, which you, know, you go there and, you know, we all know the history of Birmingham and the role that uh, that it played in, in the movement. 
and the Civil Rights Institute was there. And uh, we did a lot around that at that Christian Community Development Association conference. Jim Sunholm then at that point said to us, because he was at that conference and he knew the theme was coming up for that midwinter 99 of celebrating ethnic diversity, um, said to us, hey, you guys should think about doing and us, Jim and I, doing a Sankofa journey. And that was kind of the origin of that. Uh, and Jim and I, and he said, add it, have it be after that, um, that midwinter, which we did the next, that next day. And, you know, we designed it very similar to what we had done when we went to the Promise Keepers, um, rally. Uh, same kind of thing. But this time, though, it wasn't. It was uh, uh, not just men. It was men and women, <laughs> which was a good thing. Um, and and we did it and it came off. It came off pretty well. The only problem was um, people did kind of walk away feeling like they had taken a drink from a um, a, uh, a fire hydrant. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and Jim and I, I mean, you know, neither one of us are adult educators, but we are challengers. And so, you know, we're OK with that. But then we kind of went, eh, you know what? But I don't know that this is the best idea. And people won't necessarily sign up for that. So at that point, I thought, okay, let me talk to Doreen Olson, who was then the executive minister of Christian formation and said, look, you guys do education. You know what works with adult education. Here's this journey that we want to, that we're, that we're doing, but we want to make sure people walk away, not feeling like they were beaten over the head, but at least had an experience and what kind of things that we need to do for adult learning. And Doreen jumped right on and she said, absolutely, let's work together on this. And uh, Debbie Blue got the assignment of putting the curriculum together for our Sankofa journeys. And we worked with her to do that. And uh, so as we, we so there was more thought into what is going to stick in terms of adult education and how folks are going to take this to move the head knowledge to the heart um, and, and have both of those things going all at the same time. Um, so, uh, so we partnered with Christian Formation and I think the Sankofas from that point on, um, yes, they were still in the Department of Love, Mercy or P Compassion, Mercy and Justice because it was still that uh, during then. And uh, we were able to move Sankofas forward with, uh, with the help of Debbie Blue and C Christian Formation, a true partnership between two, de two departments within the denomination. This is a little bit of a bunny trail, but I loved the conversation of midwinter, how like critical the theme was and, and and how together, like it wasn't just you went to midwinter, you had this idea and then you just birthed it, it, it as a community, as multiple yep. people within the covenant and, and that and you guys worked it out, you massaged it and you made it to what it is today. I mean, to be real, I think, you know, when I think of Sankofa, there is this part of I'm like are you really covenant if you haven't gone on a Sankofa journey, <laughs> right? Like, cause it's so, it's so core now to who we are and that this really has become one of our key immersive discipleship experiences. Mm -hmm. And, and it makes me excited, especially having come out recently come out of our latest midwinter, where I think there were some really critical yep. uh, conversations that were had and it's making me feel hopeful today. Like, I'm like, man, like what seeds that God plant that, or, or what seeds have been planted that hopefully that we're we're watering today. Just wanted to name that. So thank you. That was yeah, no, that's that's good. I mean, that whole I mean, I when Paul talked about the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery at midwinter. Yeah, all that. I, that doesn't happen, you know, if all of these other things don't take place. I mean, everything you're right. Jane, everything builds, one thing builds on the next, and we keep moving forward. What drove you as you were doing this work? 
I grew up, the church I went to, uh, the Elmendorf Reformed Church was part of uh, what, out of New York City, what was known as the Protestant parish, and they had East Harlem interfaith. Uh, again, the movement to understand as, uh, and what they, and the reason it was called the East Harlem uh, Protestant Parish, and we moved to East Harlem Interfaith, was because the Catholics, the Catholic understanding and faith tradition that looks at a neighborhood and says this parish, everyone in this parish is part of this church. Protestants, you know, we tend to, you know, section off and uh, this is, in doing that, there are needs then that can get missed. And particularly when you're in underserved communities. So the idea of the East Harlem Protestant Parish was to say, you know, again, we go beyond just proclamation of the gospel. What are the needs that people have in the community and how do we meet those needs as people of Christ? And uh, my church, uh, the East, the Elmendorf Reformed Church and our pastor was part of uh, that whole East Harlem interfaith movement. And uh, so that's what I grew up in. And so my understanding of, of gospel, it's not about what's in it for me, but how do we serve others? And so the motivating piece for me, that, that was, that's one factor. The other factor, as a black man in America, you know, <laughs> there's some realities that you're kind of going and, you know, without getting into all of them, we all know what they are, you know, uh, it's a struggle. And to say, what is God calling me to, you know, in terms of, and, and, and I look at Dr. King and, and, and Malcolm, and I grew up when both of those men were, you know, prominent and being in New York City, Malcolm, you know, uh, and I grew up in East Harlem, so Malcolm was the guy. And as we looked at uh, Dr. King and the, the, our Christian reality there, um, drove us to say, okay, Dr. King is doing some significant work. So those two um, perspectives uh, influenced me tremendously uh, in, in my formative years. And so um, I went to a pretty much all white high school, uh, Stony Brook School is a boarding, Christian boarding school. All the white evangelicals prominent in that time sent their boys there because it was an all boys school. So I went to school with some, and I won't name them, but uh, um, some interesting folks at that time. And they were all, you know, leaders of the white evangelical world. And um just that experience, uh, I, I just kind of felt like, you know, God was saying to me, care for the disenfranchised. You know what that's about. Um, challenge your white Christian brothers and sisters to understand that the world is bigger than their world and how they understand it. And so all of those factors kind of fed into, you know, kind of who I am and drove me to continue to move forward in this journey. Uh, and it happened to be with this evangelical covenant church, <laughs> found my way there uh, and really again, like the potential that was there. But I think from the, from the heart perspective, uh, and it, it's not easy. This this racial racial stuff is hard. My gosh, and it's getting harder and harder every day. And if I'm being fully honest, there are days when I'm like, you know, white evangelicals, y'all don't get it. You don't want to get it. Why am I wasting my time? 
But there are there. God calls us to do the difficult things sometimes. So here I am, you know, and I think of my brothers and sisters, you know, like Brenda and Sung Chan Ra and, and others who who stay in this. And there's no reason on God's green earth for us to do that other than to say, you know, how has God called us to this this ministry of reconciliation what does that need to look like so um, we're highly driven by our call to be um, to be part of the body of Christ to, 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 to move forward as Christ has called us to it ain't easy but we're here thank you for that man I just so feel what you were just sharing and it's um yeah i the 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 call to reconciliation i think has been something that i feel like i i myself have been trying to lean more into right because yeah like there's i totally have days where i'm like you know what i'm just you know i'm done i'm good i'm good thanks y'all thanks for letting me play (laughs) you know and then god's like oh well actually you know like i would love to love on you through the church, like, you're like, what? Yeah, and so, yeah, and it's, yeah. right, and, and that's what we end up, yeah, that, that's part of the journey and, and really trusting God. And, like, there's definitely been a few times where I'm like, about, I have my feelings about white evangelicals. And then sometimes yep. Yep. my brothers and sisters show up, too. And so it's just, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, in the midst of it, Jane, and I've had this conversation with my wife often. There's a whole lot of people that that I that 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 I don't agree with. There are a whole lot of people that don't like me, which I don't get just when I show up to a room, don't know me, don't know a thing about me. I step in a room and all of a sudden there's all of this stuff that comes at you and there's for no reason and you know you 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 want to sit and you and, and you look at those folks and you go man but then i come back to the sermon on the mount right what does it mean to love your enemies my gosh i mean and 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 i get you know i get kicked in the tail on that all the time you know we are all created in the image of god whether i like you or not whether you like me or not if i can't look in your eyes and that's everyone and see jesus in your eyes then I've got I've got a whole lot of work to do. <laughs> you know, it ain't on you. It's back on me. You know, what does it mean to truly see Jesus in every individual that we encounter, regardless? <laughs> right? You know, and there are people that hate you just because of the color of your skin. Isn't that mind-boggling? <laughs> you know, but yet we're called to love those folks as well. Crazy, isn't it? But there is a little bit of a craziness to the gospel, you know, that that, that we have to lean into, at least craziness in man's and humans' eyes, right? <laughs> in God's eyes, it's a whole nother ball game. But, you know, for us as human beings, yeah. we don't get it, but we have to keep working. I'm listening to you both share these stories and experiences, and I'm so grateful for your invitation to be present with you. And I'm trying to lean in and um, sit with that next to you without jumping into some kind of problem solving or defensiveness. I really want to sit and ask along with you, what does it mean to love our enemies, to love my enemies? Uh, I'm really thinking about that now. And yeah, Harold, I love those words. The gospel is crazy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that should be a bumper sticker or something. Um, so our last question for you is this. What invitation do you sense from God for the Covenant Church today? It's no secret that the world and particularly our country right now is polarized in a way. I mean, you know, um, 
the second, well, first of all, the Civil War never really ended and it's continuing. <laughs> and, and, it, and, you know, it, 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 it ended physically, but ideologically, it never ended. And, and, and what we're seeing now, uh, you know, my fear is, is the, the, the actual physical civil war could break out again, you know. Um, but the covenant, I think, has an opportunity to say our understanding of God is bigger than what any of us can understand. God is so much broader and deeper and expansive. And to spend the time that we spend on trying to build our little individual fiefdoms, whatever that is, and however we define it, but it's there. But as a covenant, we have the opportunity. I hope that we continue, that we follow through with the opportunity to say, we are all God's children and all God's church children are welcomed into our fellowship. That's my call to covenant and covenant leadership and covenant churches and everybody lean into the fact that everybody is creating the image of God. And how do we care for all of that? Thank you, friends, for joining us for the Love the Cove podcast. We'll be posting new episodes every other week. If you're interested in sharing your story on when you felt like you were covenant, send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye.